Welcome to Founders and Friends, the company podcast for Tally Foods, hosted by its founders, Kyle Watts, John Gabizadeh, and Dr. Susan Marie Flugel. Hey, John. Hey, Kyle. Episode three, Founders and Friends. We have a special guest and some exciting news today. So we have Dr. Susan Marie Flugel, PhD, our nutritional biochemist on the podcast. Hey, Susan. Hi, everybody. And we have exciting news to share that we are finally producing Tally. John, tell the good folks what happened this morning. Got confirmation that production is next Monday and Tuesday, January 9th and 10th. Both Kyle and I will be flying Sunday, uh, having some haku vodka, celebrating (laughs) production, and hopefully soon the world will be able to try our, our wonderful product for their children. Absolutely. So Susan Marie Flugel, um, we'll just call you Susan, but you're on our on our website and with your full name. So people, I think, have a good feeling for who you are. Thank you for joining us today. We just want to talk about your background, really how you and John sort of met. And then I have some questions for you in terms of like what you see in the nutritional field, in terms of breakthroughs. We'll talk about vegan diets. We'll talk about what you're most passionate about and uh, just sort of click into your background, if that's okay with you. Oh, that sounds great. So so how did you and, and John meet? Um, it was years ago, right? It I believe was. on a on a dairy-based project. Yep. Um, John actually contacted me. He emailed me, and then we talked mm-hmm. on the phone with him and his sister. And they were interested in my work because I had done a whey protein study showing that whey protein drinks – reduce blood pressure. John, was that for the drinks that you were making that you referred to in the last podcast um, up in that facility in, in New York? Exactly. This was even prior to that when we first came up with the concept <laughs> of making a drinkable yogurt. Exactly. So it was prior to the drinkable yogurt phase. Um, yes. And the really interesting thing was John sent me samples of some of his yogurt and I tasted it and I thought, this is some of the best stuff I've ever tasted. Um, he's a he's a genius with his product formulation. So thank what, you, Susan. That's what cinched it for me. I'm like going, this guy is making really good product. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And that yogurt product, to be clear, John, was what we talked about in episode two. Correct. That is correct. Yes. What so made was, that yogurt first- so good? Go ahead. No, it was first the drinks, then that escalated to the yogurts. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Just as a quick aside, what Susan made that yogurt so delicious that that well, John formulated? He did an authentic Greek yogurt. A lot of people take shortcuts with their products, but I've noticed that John never takes shortcuts. And so it was it was just um, the flavor balance, the acidity, everything in that yogurt was so good that everyone that tasted it. I mean, they basically wanted, you know, like to have a 55-gallon drum of the stuff. It was really excellent um, Greek yogurt. Thank you. So, Susan, your background, you're a Ph.D. nutritional biochemist. What, what did you study in undergrad? <laughs> I have quite a few undergrad degrees. When I was a, when I was a kid, I was always interested in nutrition, but... I didn't know that you could be a nutritional scientist. I thought, you know, people that went to nutrition went to dietetics. And dietetics is a fine field. It's just that I really wanted to be a scientist. 
So um, I actually, my background is in agriculture. I did organic agriculture and sustainable agriculture. And I also have quite a lot of chemistry and biology and horticulture as an undergrad. Then for my master's, I came up here to Moscow, Idaho to do my master's, master's in entomology, which is insects. And interesting thing is my master's degree is based on a insects and diet. So I looked at aphids feeding on different levels of nutrients on plants, and then the predator, which was a um, a coccinella D, which is also kind of a kind of ladybug that fed on them. And I looked at the effects of nutrition that the aphids were feeding on on the predator that was feeding on the aphids. So I've always kind of been interested in nutrition. It wasn't though until after I got my master's that I realized that I was spending a lot of time looking at more and more nutritional books, becoming really interested in it. And I did a little more research and I found out that you could get a degree as a nutritional scientist, in my case, a nutritional biochemist, um, over actually over at WSU, which is Washington State University. So I thought, well, I'm going to look into this. And I'm really glad I did because I really love nutritional science. It's like one of those sciences where you can learn something new every single day. And I, I like to do that. Um, my, my knowledge of the field increases today because I'm just so curious about it. How do you find yourself taking in new information on a daily basis? Are you looking at research and white papers? I look at research a lot. Uh, sometimes what piques my interest is I see, I'm actually really well known um, for people come to me when they, they hear something about nutrition and they want to know if it's true or not, because I know I do the scientific research on it. So when I hear something that sounds, hmm, this is kind of interesting, you know, or a new study comes out, a lot of times the first thing I'll do is I'll just sort of dive into it and research it. And I look at all of, you know, like PubMed and all of the different areas, ResearchGate, where you can get the full papers of all of this. Um, uh, many times the blurbs that you see that come out aren't necessarily the whole story about what actually happened in the research. So I like to get kind of behind the scenes and see what actually does this research mean. I've noticed that with you, your curiosity is infectious. <laughs> I've I've posted, so if you go to if uh, drinktally.com, I created a research library tab and I posted all those articles that we've corresponded about um, since we met. And you can see that all those articles, like I would say 90% of them came from Susan emailing them to us as backup for her uh, thoughts over email, which is like a very cool way to communicate. You're always super credentialed with, what, with your statements about nutrition. It's incredible. Uh, the experience that I've had with, with Susan is 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 really remarkable in, in the, the library of information she provides regarding one single word if you ask her right she 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 gives you everything to know about it and really educated me and i lo- i learned a lot from susan and she she definitely was was a big factor in, in the in the success of uh, my my companies from when i met her well thank you i appreciate it i I really love learning, and like I said, I especially love this field because there's so many things that go into it besides nutrition. It's, you know, chemistry and physiology, and I even work with the, the pharmacy department at the colleges to give um, lectures to help them recertify their pharmacists because there's a lot of interactions between drugs and nutrition. Yeah, to me, the field is just wide open, and epigenetics, how nutrition affects your genes, 
there's something le- new to learn every day. It's just really cool. <laughs> what? Yeah, I've noticed some of your recent articles that we've corresponded on have. You've talked about genetics. What is epigenetics? So I like to describe epigenetics as the the way that environment and interacts with your genes. So you have your DNA, which is fairly stable, but then you have a layer above the genes, and that's why they call epi, meaning above the genetic code. And this this is how your body can use the environment to determine what your genes are doing. So basically, epigenetic, which includes things like methylation, which is a placement of methyl groups, which are a CH3 group, on top of your genetic code, or also includes things like winding the chromosomes more tightly or using histone winding. All of those things, what they can do is they can turn on and off your genes. They can slow them down or speed them up. So it's really cool. So basically, you can have a marker due to either what you eat, how you feel, because stress can affect it too. Um, Diet definitely has a huge effect on your epigenetic profile your parents you know they find that what your grandma did if she smoked or not that can have an effect on it and more importantly the cool thing about epigenetics is you can change in your lifetime so your actions change how your genes interact with the environment and if a lot of it has to do with nutrition good nutrition can definitely and what they find is with good nutrition a lot of the markers for, say, cardiovascular diseases, hypertension, dementia, all of those things can be either tuned down or turned off if a child, and as an adult, too, you get good nutrition, especially as a baby and a child. Um, that's when a lot of this can really occur. So your, your DNA, I think most layman terms, I would assume that my DNA is the only genes I have, and that's stable. But you're saying that there's actually genes at a different level? Yeah. That are above the DNA that, that do react with the outer environment. Think of it as like a stop sign. It's like they can say on or off, slow down, speed up. It's kind of like your art, maybe even like your, a policeman doing hand signals. So when these, these factors in your environment interact with you, it's a way for your body to quickly say, hey, this is happening. Now we need to be more thrifty with our food intake. This is happening. Now we need to produce more protein to make this particular gene so it slows and speeds up your protein production of your genes basically would metabolism be an example of that or or is that a different process metabolism is a huge example of that so for example they found that mothers who eat food that is not as nutritional like they're getting as many calories but maybe they're eating you know say a diet that's mostly cheetos and soda or something like that their offspring, actually, some of them will be born with what we call thrifty genes, meaning that the baby's genes predispose them to things like type 2 diabetes. They tend to take in and keep more nutrients as fat instead of using it as energy, and that can kind of lead you down a road where you have more inflammation in the body, and it can predispose you to a lot of inflammatory and metabolic dis- disorders. Yeah, yeah, it's that's that's super interesting. It makes sense too as you're healthier, and I've been really focusing, like everybody else, in the new year, you know, doing a dry January. So probably no haku vodka for me, John, mm-hmm. <laughs> on, <laughs> on Sunday. I'll have for you. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Um, you know, just trying to get my sleep pattern in order and and getting my nutrient density in my meals dialed in. 
And uh, I definitely already feel like like better <laughs> after, yep. you know, it's been four days of really focusing yep. on that. And my sleeping is just so much harder when I'm, when I'm really deliberate about what I eat. And John, you're very good at that. Um, but it's good to hear that that actually does work. <laughs> and it's um, called epigenetics. Yeah. And some studies have done within three days, they could see a turning around of people's epigenetic profile when they change their diet. Um, moving on, what is a nutritional biochemist? Yeah. I, I like nutritional bio, um, biochemistry is a really cool field because we get to do a little bit of everything. Basically, it's a field that involves a lot of hard science. So when you go into nutrition, um, especially at the upper levels when you're getting a PhD, you can decide whether you want to be a community nutritionalist or a nutritional biochemist. And for me, I choose the science option because I'm really interested. I got to take a lot of cool classes like um, all the chemistry, biochemistry, of course, um, the molecular biology, um, immunology, everything to have to do with how your energy flows through the body. So for me, a lot of it's breaking down as to energy coming from the sun, you know, taken up by plants. And then we are using that same energy in our body to build our body. And it usually it combines things like um, we look at medicine, we look at physiology, we look at metabolism, we look at pharmaceuticalology, chemistry, epigenetics, like I already talked about in biology, to kind of put it all together just to see what is the ideal dietary nutritional requirements for people and how can we help people say that have type 2 diabetes? What would be the ideal dietary requirements for them or if you're predisposed to something? Um, we also look at nutrition throughout the life cycle. You know, what's the ideal diet for a baby versus a child versus a, say, a senior citizen. One of the things I will tell you that has stuck with me through all my time is I took a really interesting class in nutrition and aging. And a lot of things that people think as normal aging progress are actually nutritional or dietary deficiencies. So things like that really. Okay. <laughs> because I've all, I've been wondering about this since I listened to, there's a really popular podcast called Smartless. It's an entertainment podcast with uh, three, three really funny guys. And they interviewed a doctor who was famous for making that claim you just made. And I listened to the podcast and he is obsessed and focused on stopping the aging process. And aside from gravity, his theory is basically that aging is a gene that can be slowed or stopped altogether. So are you going that far or what's your view going, on, on aging going, and diet? <laughs> I'm not going quite that far, though. It would be kind of cool if that happens in the future. But what I am saying is that a lot of what people think of as normal aging, um, say like losing your sense of taste, that a lot oftentimes is due to a zinc deficiency, um, being unsteady. Some of us do exercise, too. So it's not just I also am interested in the effects of nutrition and exercise. So a lot of times losing people when they lose their sense of balance, um, that is definitely a factor of exercise and also a lot of times protein deficiency. Um, protein deficiency can be to blame for a lot of the symptoms we see in, in older people, including a decreased immune response. Interesting. I, one of my biggest fears in life is, I'll be blunt, having Alzheimer's or having a stroke. Um, and really just protecting my cognitive health. Um, I think I can deal with the physical aspects of mm -hmm. aging, but I'm really like, it really truly terrifies me. Um, I'm claustrophobic, not having cognitive functions, not being able to move um, is like utterly horrifying. Are there any things 
that has been proven or, or, or exciting progress in maintaining your cognitive abilities through nutrition as you age? Yeah, actually, um, one of the things we do like the um, alpha linoleic acid that we see in the chia seed oil, that's, that, that has been shown to help increase your cognitive abilities. And anything like that that keeps your, um, anything that keeps your brain flexible, learning a new skill, especially something that's hard for you, something as simple as driving to work a different way, that makes a big difference with your brain. And keeping your body healthy is also brain health. So one thing that I'm really fascinated by also is inflammation in the body. And if you have meta-inflammation, which is chronic um, whole body inflammation, inflammation in your body, not only does it affect things like type 2 diabetes, cancer, it also affects things like dementia. So you have, if you have an inflamed body, you have an inflamed brain. That's one thing to remember. So keeping your body healthy keeps your brain healthy. That makes a ton of sense and it's intuitive. What foods inflame the body besides alcohol? Yeah. I know that inflames the body and I know that yep, alcohol has been tied to dementia and that's one of the reasons why I'm sort of like, hmm, mid-30s might want to consider really tapering off because that, that really is a major inf- inflam- inflammator. Yeah. Well, what else? Inflammatory factor. Um, yeah, um, alcohol definitely is a, a huge factor. Um, it's, it's, it's toxic to your body. So your body has to like stop everything when you drink, start trying to detoxify the alcohol uh, you get fatty build up in your liver because your liver's main job is to take the sugars out of your body, turn them to fat, move them around the body to different places. It can't do its job. So then you can also get insulin resistance. So that's one. The other ones are um, ultra processed foods. Um, like if you have foods like Cheetos, I would call anything that you kind of grind up and extrude through a tube, like a Cheeto or a, um, sugary cereals those are soft drinks so if you're um anytime that you're talking about things that have a lot of processed sugar in that's a usually for most people that is a uh, like a pro-inflammatory thing um the best the best thing to do is to try to eat more whole foods um and try to get more like uh, natural foods for example mm-hmm that that makes sense. The the point about the alcohol is fascinating, John. I don't know if you knew that, but so if you like drink a glass of alcohol and you have a cheeseburger, your body prioritizes filtering the toxicity of the alcohol first. Yes, it does. And that's why people develop beer guts is because amongst other reasons, but you, literally your body just stores that meal as fat because it's so busy processing the alcohol. Well, it's actually even a little more insidious than that. So your body's busy doing the alcohol filtering, like you said. And so you have all of this uh, sugar that should be stored as fat and it gets uh, and moved throughout the system. So sometimes it gets to your liver and your liver still stores it in the liver's fat, but it can't make the proteins that it needs to transport it around your body. So you start getting developing a fatty liver. Well, fatty liver is one of the signs of metabolic disorder. So you start getting insulin resistance from that. And so insulin resistance can lead you on like a slippery slope where it starts like this um, cycle where you start gaining weight and then the weight gain leads to inflammation and then inflammation leads to more 
weight gain and then it leads to more inflammation. And so it can start a really, uh, and not just with alcohol, by the way, we're kind of picking on alcohol here, but with other things, like if you eat way too much sugar than you need, um, that can start on that too. Added sugar you're talking about, not natural sugar. Yeah, added sugars. Right. Yes, not, not natural sugars. You need some carbohydrates. I always say you should have at least, you know, like 30% or so carbohydrates in your diet. So, and I'm not down on all sugars. So there's a lot of good natural sugars and they usually come in good foods. But when you start just dumping added sugars on things is when you start running into these inflammatory problems. Yeah. None of these studies say, Hey, people get inflammation from eating apples or from, you know, chowing down on chickpeas or Okay, if I let's, let's let's pick on the orange for a second. If I were to eat an orange and it contains ten grams of natural sugar, you're, is that truly better for me than just a cup of ten grams of sugar? Yes. Like how? How? Because it's still sugar. It comes with nutrients, and it also comes with all the fiber in the orange, which balances out the That's- insulin. Yep. Instead of spiking it. Out. Exactly. So your body. The, way, the fiber balances out the insulin. Exactly. Yes. But what happens with, mm. when you have fiber is it slows down how sugar enters your body. So it starts slowing down. The other thing that happens with fiber is your gut bacteria use the fiber to make beneficial chemicals for your body. And many of these beneficial chemicals, and actually that's what we found happened with whey protein, by the way, too, is uh, one of the things that can happen with some of these either um, fibers or short chain, they make short chain fatty acids in your gut because your gut bacteria consume them, make these short chain fatty acids. They, your body actually takes them up, use them as the signaling molecules. And a lot of them are actually very beneficial signaling molecules. They say things to your body like, hey, reduce the inflammation. Um, hey, bring down insulin. You know, they're actually very helpful to help your body. Um, Plants, by the way, have a lot of beneficial fibers that you can really see this when we're looking at some studies with plant fibers in the gut. They're beneficial not only for the composition of your gut microorganisms, but beneficial for what they produce. You know, that there's a great quote that says, um, eat good food, not too much, mostly plants. What would be your three-line quote? <laughs> I would say, um, eat whole foods. Don't obsess about your food because that can cause stress and get plenty of good exercise outdoors because those are three Ooh, things. Yes. There, I also know a lot about nature therapy. There is a lot of good research showing that getting out and into the sunshine or just hanging out with trees lowers your stress hormones, helps everything work better. Another thing to consider is outdoors, even during a cloudy day, actually has more light as measured by lumens than if you're indoors in an operating theater. So you always have more light outdoors pretty much, unless it's night. Moving forward to talk about nutrition in your lifetime, has nutrition in the U.S. improved or declined over your lifetime in your eyes? And that if that's too simple of a question, please correct me. I think in a lot of ways, some ways it's improved and some ways it's declined. So there's been a lot more, like I really call the ultra-processed foods that people are consuming. But on the other hand, there's a greater awareness of the need to eat healthy. So we have both factors. Um, I think one change which has not been good is that people are eating much larger portion sizes. And we're increasingly finding out that portion size can have a lot to do with inflammation. So if you eat consistently more than you need, it can actually trigger inflammation. 
um, it's worse with processed food soap. Yeah, that's that's my uh, ex coworker. Uh, her husband is a doctor. And I remember her telling me that that his piece of advice was, and it actually came from what the quote I said earlier was: "Eat good food, not too much." Oh yeah, actually, um, I do a segment on fad diets because that's one of my interests. Like I said, when I was talking about myths. And one of the things to say, it sounds like a fad diet, but it's actually not. It's intermittent fasting as long as it's done in a safe way. Um, what happens when you fast is your body will actually seek out and destroy, for example, um, proteins that are misshapen or old. So it will go out, seek out and destroy those so it can reuse all the materials in them. So you're kind of helping to rejuvenate yourself when you do so. And this was one of my questions I had later, so I'm going to cross it out now. So what fads are valid? We'll, we'll stick with intermittent fasting as a valid fad. So what constitutes a fast? Is it, is it 12 hours? It depends on the Eight person. Hours? Actually, you know, you could have a four-hour fast. What a lot of people do with intermittent fasting is, uh, well, we got to the point in modern society where some people just kind of eat 24-7. So even having a 12-hour fast is fine. Um, for most people, there is actually no need to go into multi-day fasts at all. They, you know, just 12 hours or a 16-hour fast for people want, if they want to even lose weight faster. That works really good. We, we see the same benefits with those types of intermittent fasting that you do with a multi-day fast without the detriments like, you know, electrolyte loss or fainting or getting really irritable and attacking your coworkers to grab their candy <laughs> Susan, I, I, right. I had a question, Susan, regarding intermittent fasting versus caloric deficit, which one would be uh, healthier for, for the, for the body and even for the mind? I'd say intermittent fasting because people with a caloric deficit tend to get really grumpy and they've found that when they've done those studies where they, you know, and a lot of those studies do show that, if you con- consistently eat, you know, less food than you need, you may live longer and it seems to be healthier, but most people just can't handle it because they get very grumpy and what we call food obsessed. So their thoughts all the time are food, where it is, what it is. And to me, that's not, that's not a healthy way to live. So a lot of people, it's a lot easier for them just to say, okay, I'm just not going to, you know, eat, maybe I'll skip breakfast or maybe I just won't eat after dinner at six at night. You know, it's something as little as that. And for them, it's really, it's really simple. It doesn't make them hungry all the time. It doesn't make them grumpy. Um, it's still very healthy for your body and reduces inflammation. Interesting. That's why you're so grumpy, John. Don't you operate on the caloric deficit? I do, but I'm never grumpy. You know me. <laughs> quite, quite the opposite. You are a del- delightful human Thank being. You. You're a delightful human being. I think it's because you just uh, – you. Um, Survive on passion, John. He is. He's always been very passionate about what he does. Thank you. Thank you. I do. I do love what I do. I think that helps people live longer. I was thinking about that last night, actually. Things are getting really intense here at Tally, Susan. We are. Mm-hmm. We, we just wrote a $32,000 check to our co-packer that just cashed from our account. And it's all good stuff, but we're definitely at the crux of the climb, which is the hardest part of the climb which is that we've done a ton of work and we are, we are right on the cusp of producing. Right. And I was just thinking about how passion is so important when you take on large endeavors. And then I was just thinking that I'm so excited though, you know, I'm so energized by it. And I was just thinking that if I were to find like a tally kids project to work on every decade, especially if John and I could stay friends, (laughs) 
Um, I, what, what, I, there's what, no doubt I would live what longer. If we're gonna stay friends, <laughs> of course we're gonna. What's, what's a bad choice of word? Yeah, I've been friends with Don for quite a while here. I can say he's been a very good friend. Yeah, so. me and Susan go way back. She, I annoy her with the dumbest questions, and she she always supports me, and we're good. <laughs> I, I love getting questions. That's like that like makes my t- day if I get a question I haven't heard before. Actually, <laughs> that is a uh, a phenomenal quality to have as a uh, a growing human being, right? Is to be excited by challenges and excited by stumping questions you know i had it i had a class one time i taught an intermediary metabolism class which is mostly biochemistry and i try to keep it exciting and fun but the students kept asking me more and more questions and they were getting further for a field but i had so much fun with that class i thought this is like the best class ever every day they have a new challenging question well later i met up with a student after the class and she said they had been trying to stump me they kept thinking of new and new questions they said but we couldn't stump you and so then they gave me a nickname, which was the Encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, "We meant as a compliment." I said, "I'm taking that as a compliment." I thought it was the best nickname ever. <laughs> it's a good nickname and true. Let me let me keep trying to to. Uh, these aren't really stumping questions, but <laughs> what if intermittent fasting is a fad that isn't really a fad? That there's some science behind it, and that was really cool to hear that as you progress in your fast your body starts to sort of dig through the scrap pile it and, does. and discard. That's amazing. Think about it as recycling. Yeah. So there's no new food in the pile in your stomach. So it's sort of sorting out mm-hmm. the, the misfits. Exactly. That's, it that actually just gets rid like of a, a lot thing. of the um, deformed proteins. And your body is always making proteins get deformed. Maybe they're aging. Um, cells need to be re- replaced and repaired. And your body will just dig down a little deeper and get rid of them so it can reuse those materials and make new ones. What fads do you hate the most? One where actually people use cotton balls, dip it in liquid, and eat the cotton balls. I heard that. Yes, I... That one I'm really not a fan of. There's other ones where people do things like eat baby food. And definitely as an adult, you should be chewing food unless you can't, you know. So. What are the keto diet, Susan? You know, a lot – for some people, they work. For me personally, I prefer a more balanced diet um, because I think people get very irritable if they don't eat carbohydrates after a while. It can make people irritable. Your brain, it can use ketones as fuel. And it also uses other factors as fuel. So sometimes people can get used to it. I think there's a, a certain percentage of people that might be able to get used to that diet and be fine on it. But I know for me that after a while, I just want a you know, big bowl of ice cream after. That, that's my, that's my that's my thinking. I think all these diets at the end of the day will yep. become fads. The keto, the uh, whatever, whatever, paleo, whatever you, whatever's out there. I, I really truly believe that eating normal but not eating too much and maintaining that yep. and, and, and exercising will keep your body always stable and healthy. These these keto diets, paleo diets, all these diets we were talking about, somebody basically has bread or, or, or ice cream, they start gaining the weight back. Within like a month, it's you're back to where you were. And I say you, this because you know my sister's yeah. a nutritionist, Susan. And yep, I know that. She reaches yeah. out to you about questions that she has and, uh, you know, she, she, she works with a lot of people that work with her and she works on the caloric deficit where, where she, they eat pizza, they can eat whatever, but they, they basically, you know, uh, keep it to a, to a level. 
where they lose that weight, but they don't have to restrict themselves from eating right. all that other stuff that, that, that they're suffering from eating, right? And she's successful from it. People that leave her to go to do the other diets eventually come back to her. Yeah, no, that's a good way to, the reason that works so well is people don't feel like anything's forbidden fruit. You know, once you think something's forbidden fruit, that's all you can think about. It's like, I can't have sugar. I want to eat it. I can't have this. I want to eat it. So I'm, I'm not, I don't, I try not to ever shame people about what they're eating. Um, because I think that you can have a little bit of anything in moderation. Um, I totally do agree with that. For some people, diet uh, restriction works where you're like, okay, I have this many calories a day. But then for other people, something a little less formal, like, like the intermittent fasting works better because then they don't have to think about as much. Usually when you do intermittent fasting, you still end up consuming a lot less calories just because you're not eating all the time. So it naturally kind of limits it. Right. That, that does work for me. Just knowing, okay, you're going to eat. Yep. Make a good make a good choice because you're going to start your t- your fasting clock after this. So, <laughs> if you eat Frito Lay's and a hot dog, you you know you're going to be hungry in two hours, and that's I, not going to be a fun. I, experience, I would so. stay away from both the Frito Lay and the hot dogs. Those two are definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> hot dogs are truly one of the most disgusting things, I, I, but the most delicious things too. It's just one of those things. <laughs> All right. We talked about keto. I'm going to ask you about two more diets. Paleo. What are your thoughts on the paleo diet? I think, I know some people have been very successful on the paleo diet, though usually they use a modified form. So um, I believe that for some people who are extremely insulin resistant, it works a lot better for them to go on a really whole foods, almost all natural diet, which is pretty much what the paleo diet is. I mean, they don't restrict necessarily restrict carbohydrates. Um, I mean, people have this concept, it's just all proteins, but there's actually quite a lot of things they can eat. And so for some people, uh, I had a friend who was really insulin resistant, had a lot of health issues, which were almost totally resolved for her on a paleo diet. Wow. What about the the raw diet, the the vegan raw diet, which seems ex- extreme? That, no. <laughs> so paleo, I'm fine. I mean, I guess cavemen get to cook their food over campfires and stuff. So for most humans, our food, to get our nutrients from food, we need to cook the food. We are not able to absorb nutrients from um, raw foods, many raw foods near as well. So... People who eat a totally raw food diet, and I have heard of that before, it's really a tough diet to be on. It's it's hard to get the nutrients. It's hard to get the proteins. There's been some theories that one of the reasons we developed our larger brains is because we figured out how to cook our food for the campfire, and that gives the nutrients necessary to power our brains, which use a lot of our energy each day. Interesting. That makes sense. The brain uses a lot of energy every day. I've always wondered about that oh yeah your brain can use well depending on how much you're using it there's been the <laughs> guess has been anything from you know like 15 to 20 percent to 25 percent of your daily energy is used by your brain unfortunately see this is why dieting can be you have to be careful with the dieting if you restrict cal- your caloric intake too much the first thing as I always mentioned that gets cut off sometimes is your cognitive processes the big neurons in the front of your brain where you use your frontal lobe, where you do most of your thinking, those are the ones that use the most energy. 
So if your brain's going to cut off uh, energy to something, it's not cutting off energy to your heart or to your lungs. You know, it's not going to cut off energy to those things, but it will be like, hey, you know, this thinking up here is using a lot of energy. Why don't we just kind of dial down a little on that? Interesting. And I, I, I experience that sometimes. Can your brain become more efficient or can your brain get into like a, a groove? Yes. Um, okay. If that's the- <laughs> let's hear about that. And then I want to know what, what foods are best for, for your brain. Um, foods that are best for your brain are, are things that actually your brain likes a combo. It likes to have a little bit of fat, a little bit of protein, and a little bit of carbs. And that's what I usually say. They've actually done studies showing that if you eat anything before you enter a test, you'll do better on the test. But the fat-carb-protein combo is one of the best for helping you think. Now, your brain a lot of times likes to use glucose for fuel, but it can also switch to using um, different kinds of fats for fuel. It can also use lactic acid for fuel, which is something you make after you exercise. So it can be somewhat metabolically flexible if it wants. Now, as for getting into a groove, um, that can happen when you kind of get into the flow. And you can actually train your brain to do that by learning to be less distracted in life. So if you're always looking at your phone or your email and you're not allowing yourself just time to sit and think over things, you can actually train your brain to just be kind of jumpy and less efficient. If you want to be efficient, don't multitask. They find that multitasking is less efficient in every age group and every type of people. Apparently, the people who do it best are young women. The people that do it worst are old guys. So um, if you really want to get into the groove and do something well, just concentrate on on one thing, one, <laughs> just do it without jumping around and doing other things. And you're actually find yourself getting more and more efficient and training your brain to be faster because your brain knows, okay, we sat down. Now we're going to sit here for half an hour and do this. We're not going to hop over after five minutes and look at our email. We're not going to be like reading uh, the news. We're not going to be doing this and that. There's a certain peacefulness that I feel when I make those decisions and stick with them, such as this podcast. I'm not worried. I was worried about the email up until one minute before we got on this call. I was, you know, and then since we've been talking, I'm like, whatever. I'll worry about that when we're done with this. And uh, I do much better work when I'm not taking inputs while I'm trying. And I think that's called deep thinking or thinking fast and slow. The Daniel Kahneman book is, is great on that. Just different modes your brain can access. Yeah, they actually show your brain has different brain waves when it goes into, um, like I said, some people used to call it the zone or other things when you're, everything is just flowing clearly and your brain is working more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And every time you choose to do something like that, you're training your brain, you're um, making new neurons and new connections in your brain. With vegan diets, um, the first thing I want to talk about in terms of like brain health and now body health is, you know, you mentioned the protein and the carbohydrates and whatnot. Um, is there a difference between animal protein and plant protein? Are there any major drawbacks there that are irreplaceable when you switch to a vegan diet in terms of body and brain health? There's, it's not irreplaceable, but you have to be more cautious when you, especially with vegans. Um, one of the things you have to, to be careful about is that you're getting the, the proper complement of amino acids. So plants don't, proteins in animals tend to have the amino acids that we need to build more proteins in the right proportions. Well, you run it with plants is what they call rate limiting amino acid, 
where one of the amino acids in the plant protein will be lower. And how a lot of people get around this is you have complementary proteins, um, and proteins will stick around in your body for several hours too. So if you eat protein, plant proteins through the day that are complementary, they will bring the other needed amino acids in to help you make full proteins. But the reason is rate limiting is if you have one, if you, you might have like 100% of your needs for all the amino acids but one, but this one you only have 20. Well, if it's one of the essential amino acids that your body can't make, then you can only make 20% of the amino acids that you need. And so that's, this is why it can become important to make sure that you have a, a more complete protein as a vegan or vegetarian protein source with plants. Kids move off breast milk between one to three years of age. And kids have dairy allergies. Kids have the highest mm-hmm. proliferation of dairy allergies of any age group. Kids also have the highest proliferation of food allergies of any age group. Um, kids grow out of these allergies, you know, typically by age four or five, six up, you know, it, it varies, but they have this allergy issue and they also have this need for nutrition. How, how do we balance that? You know, how, how can, can kids thrive on a, on, on a dairy free diet, on a vegan diet, well, on, a, on an animal free diet? Yes. Um, kids can do well on it, an animal free diet, but it does take a little more work. And that's the thing you have to choose products that, are more nutritionally complete to help the kids thrive. I mean, you can't just, just hand them like uh, one of, one of the things that kind of appalls me is some of the, some of the plant milks that I've seen are not very nutritious. They don't have any protein in, they might throw a couple of vitamins in them. And that's kind of a problem because you, you might be giving your, you're not really setting your kid up to thrive with these sort of products. That's why Tally Kids exists. You, you, you hit the nail on the head right there. I've been in the plant-based milk business, as people know by now, probably for 12 years. And one of the biggest things that's always frustrated me is, and it's frustrated the, the dairy segment as well. And that's also why legislation is coming any day now. That's probably looks like going to fall on the side of the dairy farmers, which is to say you can't call it plant-based milk. Because milk is a nutritional standard inherently, uh, eight grams protein, uh, calcium, all the all the complete amino acid profiles, and plant based milks just don't have that. To your point, Susan, almond milk has one to two grams protein and is is basically water. Um, That's what I think. And then you milk. know, water. And, yeah, I mean it is water and bad for the environment at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and so no no kid can thrive on almond milk. The best milk before Tally comes to stores later this month is probably a pea milk or a flax milk or a soy milk. Mm-hmm. Yep, for kids. Um, unfortunately, soy is a big nine allergen. So let's for millions of kids, we have to take that off with pea milk and flax milk. Um, if you've ever tasted flax milk. Good luck having your child drink that every day. Um, and then pea milk does taste a little bit better than flax, I would say. But there's a there's a big gap in the market, John and I believe, to help these kids out with a better tasting um, protein source, which is the chickpea. And, you know, using John's skill set, which you complimented him earlier on, <laughs> um, making it better tasting without adding any sugar. And I think we've accomplished that. We'll see in two weeks how it tastes, but we've tasted it multiple times and we feel like we're in a good spot. Um, you built the the vitamin package. So sort of how the Tally Kids formula was built is 
we started with the chickpea protein. John started with that. And John formulated against that to make it taste good. And then Susan came in with this specific nutritional vitamin mix um, that we should use. Um, we could actually talk about the nutritional panel to, to, for the next 15 minutes. Then we have to wrap it up because John has to go. So in terms of the fat content and the fiber content, um, fat, we wanted to match whole milk. So we put in, I believe, 8 grams, Correct. John. And then the fiber, speak to that, Susan, because I remember you pushing for the fiber to huh. complement. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted, we wanted enough fiber in the product, but not too much. Because if you add too much fiber, and John and I actually both talked about this, uh, remember like his, he also mentioned that if you add too much fiber, you can, you can cause things like constipation in kids. So you have to be pretty careful. You want enough that you're feeding your gut bacteria. You're helping keep the kid full. That is beneficial, but you don't want so much that the kids, kids in particular don't need near as much fiber as adults. So you have to be kind of careful. With also want to want to mention that the type of fiber that we use is, is very important uh, we use a fiber that is, is kind of clinically proven, the guar fiber, to allow for the, the fiber to, to work in the gut bacteria where basically the child is not going to get any of the constipation or, or irregular stomach pains such as uh, other types of fibers from, let's say, a tubular root that, that, that would basically uh, exactly. contribute to John's totally right. The type of fiber that was used is a very good fiber to, to actually have all the beneficial effects of fiber without having the detrimental effects. Help feed the gut bacteria, and especially important when kids are young to have them develop a really good um, level of gut bacteria. Susan, I, I, I do want to also ask if you can talk about the difference between soluble, which is what we use, versus insoluble, and, and, and oh, yes. that's important. So soluble... Um, soluble is a fiber that the gut bacteria normally feed on. And actually, soluble fiber has a lot of health benefits. That's like cardiovascular health benefits. It lowers blood pressure. Um, and more importantly, it supports a thriving, um, like, microcosmic amount of these little microorganisms <laughs> in your gut. So soluble fiber is just like beneficial food for your good gut bacteria. Now, insoluble fiber usually goes right through the gut. It does have some, some bacteria do eat it and does have some benefits, but um, the soluble is definitely what you really want. It's a more expensive fiber too, so a lot of people go the cheaper route and just dump in a lot of insoluble fiber, which just doesn't have those same health benefits. Um, our fat content is 8 grams. It comes from high oleic sunflower oil. There's different grades of vegetable oils, and I think that the consumer rightfully so is can be confused, overwhelmed, and just doesn't have the time to, to, to say that canola oil looks the same as safflower, which looks the same as sun. Like it all looks the same. How could it possibly be, be that different? The major difference amongst the vegetable oils is the balance of polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats. And sunflower oil is extremely high in monounsaturated fats and low in poly. And explain why that's beneficial, Susan. Uh, Molly unsaturated fats are, part of the reason they think that the Mediterranean diet has been so successful is these fats are needed by the body, but they are not as inflammatory as the polyunsaturated fats. 
So you need a few polyunsaturated fats, but if you get too many, you can cause extra inflammation in the body. You don't have that problem with those monounsaturated fats. They also keep the product stable. They don't tend to go, um, they don't go rancid because they're less prone to be oxidized. So they're less inflammatory in the body. You're, you also use, like the oleic acid, for example, is one of the things that is high in milk, by the way, too. And it's one of the reasons that they believe milk has some of its health benefits. And, of course, also any other product that has high oleic acid has health benefits because of this. It's very beneficial for cell membranes, for brain growth. It's another thing. And oleic acid itself has been shown to have a cardiovascular benefit. In fact, it FDA lets you put like a little statement on adult products saying that it's good for your cardiovascular system if you have X amount. If Tally Kids succeed, then I think it will do well. (laughs) (laughs) We get that every podcast as I say if, and John corrects me to say when. So that's a common common thing here. Common thing, huh? Well, no, I I believe in it just as much as he does. I'm just a nervous Nelly, and John is uber confident. Um, but when we launch a tally like seniors, which I think we will, and it'd be, it'd be too much fun not to, I think um, too. And, right? And we could help that population and work with you and develop one catered to those folks. But it's good to know that high oleic um, acid is in milk and it's good for your heart health, which would be more mm-hmm. so for the, the, the elderly population. Uh, moving along, our protein is chickpea protein. Um, chickpeas, Susan, we've talked about this. They do have all nine essential amino acids or they have eight of nine they actually have all the essential amino acids and the world health organization considers chickpeas a complete protein because some of the amino acids can complement each other um zero sugar that's that's all john (laughs) that's john you want to speak to 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 your passion behind that so uh, you know i also want to mention to everyone listening that uh, one other thing that we're eliminating for for uh, any any child that would have this our beverage, our, our milk, basically is the fact that it doesn't have any lactose, right? The regular milk, real milk, has sugar, which sugar is lactose. So we we have zero uh, lactose. And now, regarding the sugars, we use something called uh, monk fruit, and the monk fruit is basically a fruit that has something called magrosides, which which acts like a sweetness, but but it's not sweet at all. It's zero. Basically, zero calories, zero sugar, uh, zero, zero everything. So uh, we use very, very, very little of it and gives uh, the, the, the impression that it's sweet. And uh, Susan tried it. I would love to hear Susan's thoughts on that as well. Oh, yeah. Monk fruit is actually a, a really viable option. It's, a, it's actually beneficial to people's health, they found out. It has... Um, it has, it seems to have like anti-insulin um, resistant qualities, so it can actually lower the amount of, of insulin in your body, which is great because that can help prevent inflammation. And he, by the way, even little kids can have inflammation, so this is kind of an important thing. And the gut bacteria don't mind it, and it's beneficial. So it's a, a very good sweetener, non-nutritional sweetener to use. The best out there right now, and then the, in the pure, the I purity that we use. Is the type that we use is the purest in the entire world, and the most expensive too. I, I mean, just for everyone to know how, how much we care about our ingredients, we're paying five hundred dollars a pound for for the monk fruit. 
That's, that is no wow. joke. This is the purest of the purest of the purest. There's monk fruits out there that are diluted with, uh, you know, different types of uh, uh, bulking agents, right? They use urethritol. They use uh, any, any, anything to, to make it bulked. But in our case, it's the pure, it's purest of the monk fruit that, that exists. Yeah, and we delayed our production for that monk fruit. Our Instagram followers will know. So even when push came to shove and I was like, John, this is this monk fruit's killing us, man. We gotta get a different monk fruit supply. He was like, Nope. Nope. Absolutely not. That's, We're gonna wait for the monk fruit. That's what I like about John. He his is dedicated to obtaining the best ingredients. He doesn't compromise. Thank you. Well, we naturally have no cholesterol, which no plant-based milk should have cholesterol. If they do, you should run away. Vitamin D, calcium, iron, and potassium. You specified those for us, Susan, at daily levels appropriate for children aged one to three. Mm-hmm. And then we went and we used that as the baseline. So folks know we basically said we we want to make sure that children aged one to three are getting it at the specified levels and we're not overdosing them on vitamins. And so all of our vitamins are dosed to the one to three level. And then H4 and up is just, you know, less of a daily value. Yeah, we definitely wanted to keep it safe and make sure that our dosing was in the range for those younger kids. So I'm going to go through three more ingredients, um, three more vitamins that I I really want to speak to because they're on our package. Choline. We have 60 milligrams choline. Why is choline so important? Brain. If you want to grow your brain, you need choline, and especially for kids who are growing their brain. So this is an extremely important one for any kind of neurodevelopment or cognitive functioning, and they definitely show it. It makes a difference in uh, kids' attention span, how you know their ability to to think, basically. And what is it? What does it do? Is it is it a, a lubricant of the neural pathways, for lack of a better term? Um, is it just pure energy that? The brain just loves eating choline. It just recently has been, well, not, well, recently in nutritional standards has been classified as a a nutrient. So it used to be thought that it was a B vitamin because some of its actions are so similar to it. Now we know it's not in the B vitamin area, but it complements the B vitamins. So it definitely is, is used in a lot of those pathways where you're, you're making energy, where your nerves are functioning. And anytime you're interfering with, energy flow through your nerves, you're, you're, you're disrupt, you know, just kind of disrupting your cognitive flow there, you're going to have lower brain function. It also protects the brain against adverse conditions. So one of the things it can do is if you're, you're in a stressful environment or you have bad metabolic conditions, it will protect the brain against those fluctuations. So it's, it's kind of like a neuroprotective nutrient, I would say, helping to keep your brain safe. Amazing. And then alpha linoleic acid, omega-3, ALA, oh, omega-3. Oh, yeah. That, that's another great brain one. In fact, they, show, they didn't show this with kids because it's hard to do experiments on kids. You know, our parents don't like it. We don't want to hurt kids. <laughs> but with adults, they found that it actually eating ALA increased your brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And this is what they like to call miracle growth for brain. It makes your brain grow literally. So it promotes not only the growth, but also survival of any new brain cells that you make. And it helps with learning and memory. Um, plays a really vital role in kids' growth and development, too. It's uh, one of the ones that the FDA definitely recommends that kids get um, ALA each day to be healthy. 
we also supplemented with a full B vitamin complex. Um, we won't go through every B vitamin, but Susan, can you, and we specified it, as I said earlier, we specified each vitamin to the appropriate daily value for a young child, age one to three. So no worries there, but can you explain why you wanted us to really make sure we did all the B vitamins that the, were necessary? The B vitamins work together, even though they're separate nutrients. The reason they're all called Bs is they were all found together in the early 19th century before they knew they're separate vitamins. What they work together with is apparently energy metabolism and growth. So whenever you're making energy in your mitochondria, all your cells are making energy, they need that full complement of the B vitamin plus things like vitamin C, iron, and magnesium to make energy. If you don't have it, you're going to be low on energy. Cognitive skills are going to be delayed. They found with kids, not getting enough B vitamins was associated with uh, delayed or not as well with their cognitive performance. Um, kids who are on the autistic spectrum disorder a lot of times also have inadequate levels of B vitamins and choline. And it can be... It can affect people's mental health and behavior. So not getting enough B vitamins in teenagers, they found, can actually um, be linked or correlated with behavioral problems and poor mental health. And that makes sense when you think about how energy flow is cut off to your brain first, like we were talking about earlier. So if you don't have enough B vitamins, B vitamins are there going to be used to do things like power your heart and your lungs, not go up to your frontal lobes. And anyone who has a kid or a teenager knows those frontal lobes are still developing and they need all the help they can get. So when kids are getting adequate nutrition, adequate B vitamins, thinking skills are likely going to be improved because they'll be getting enough energy to your frontal lobe, enough energy to your brain to think. To, to, to ingredients, I also want uh, to discuss and have Susan elaborate on the chocolate. Uh, this is a treat that you know we offer the chocolate flavor, which no other company offers for, for plant-based for kids. And I, I want to emphasize on the, on the cacao that we use uh, and, and explain to the, to the listener the difference between the cacao versus the cocoa and what type we use. And I would love for Susan to give her opinion on, uh, expert opinion on, on, on wh- why the cacao is important for the child. There is three types of cacao in the world. That, that, that's grown, harvested. There's the Forestero, Criollo, and Trinitario. We use the Criollo, which is the rarest of the rare, the Rolls-Royce of cacao. This is the most expensive, once again, of the cacao, but it has the most purity and best flavor. So we use this in, in our chocolate flavor. It's a cacao that, that basically uh, is sun-dried. It's not, it's not processed in any way whatsoever. It's sun-dried, it's grinded, and it, from, you have the raw cacao. Uh, that uh, is is something that that I want Susan to emphasize how important it is because the cocoa that most CPG companies use is processed, alkalized, and has no nutrients. Right? Obviously, it's raw, but we're proce- we're pasteurizing it to the point where we're killing all of the bacteria and all that. But I would love to hear your opinion. Yeah, John's totally right. The high quality, like what we're using with it makes a big difference when you have a raw ingredient that's not processed. And in particular, when you alkalize cocoa, what happens is you actually destroy the antioxidants in the cocoa. So um, the, a pure product like John created and selected for us, it has those antioxidants available. They're not going to be destroyed. It's a much healthier option um, and much tastier option too. So for both taste reasons and health reasons, that this is definitely a superior choice 
for the chocolate flavor. I think a lot of people think, hey, it's a kid's drink. We will throw some inexpensive, chalky you know, stuff in there, and no one will know the difference because their parents aren't consuming I think it. that's a very good point, Susan. And, and Kyle, we have to actually emphasize the amount of antioxidant in our, in our, in our chocolate flavor. I think maybe we should do a, a RAC test and see what, what the level is, perhaps. And, and, and I think it's going to be higher than, uh, you know, in, in a good level for, for a child to have. What do you think, Susan? Is that something... I think so too. I think you'll find a lot of good antioxidants, especially in that natural product like that. And there's been a whole lot of work on the health benefits of chocolate in general and all types. And of, you know, of course, one that has more antioxidants is going to be healthier. That will wrap it up for today. Want to thank you again, Dr. Flugel. Um, pleasure having you on the team. Can't say enough how valuable mm-hmm. you've been. Um, and thank you for working with us as, as a true partner. Um, I certainly plan to make this brand a success and, and, and to have you along for the ride. So thank you so much for working on this far. Thank you, Susan. Oh, you're welcome. And I really have enjoyed, I really do enjoy working with you guys because of your passion for this and your dedication to having a, a great product. I mean, there's a lot of people that would kind of phone in or say, hey, this is what milk has. This is what the FDA wants. We'll just put these in. But you went above and beyond to include the full nutritional standard for kids, which I think is great. All right, guys. Thank you, Susan. John, I'll see you Sunday, my friend. Yeah, I'm excited. Have fun (laughs) with that. (laughs) We we will. We'll do, we'll do well and bring your microphone, John, and we'll might do a podcast from, uh, from the room. I I think it's kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.